0: Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the
1: Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. This
2: week, we're heading back to my old haunt, the Iron Age of Western Asia. Not far from the shores of Lake Ormia, in what's today the in the province of West Azerbaijan in Iran. Um, so not Azerbaijan. This is West Azerbaijan,
1: which is a province of Iran. Born and raised
2: uh, on the playground exists, where I
1: spent. what <laughs> I was doing... West Philadelphia.
2: No, don't do that. Okay. Um, there exists the site of Tepe Hasanlu, the largest settlement of the Qatar River Valley. The site was occupied from the Neolithic up until the medieval period with a few hiatuses in there, the most significant of which happened in the early first millennium BCE and is the topic of today's episode. Um, this this period and its subsequent gap is sometimes referred to as Iran's Pompeii because of the degree of preservation and the emotional story told by the archaeological record.
1: (laughs) Anna and I learned about Hassan Lu together. I retained (laughs) nothing through no fault of the professor or the class. I just it's, it's all gone.
2: So, just as a refresher for Anna and to let everyone else know, um, we sat next to each other in, a, in a survey. <laughs> yeah, in a um, in a survey of the archaeology of Iran, where Anna drew little little seals on my on my um, notebook <laughs> because <laughs> these are seals
1: off of Lake Ormia.
2: <laughs> um, and I, I think
1: I know why I retained nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I did uh, a lot of doodling in that class. Sorry.
2: So, <laughs> in my notebook. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I did my term paper on the dating of the destruction level at Hassan Liu. And Anna wrote her term paper on Loristan bronzes.
1: Yeah, I uh, this was the phase of my uh, academic career where I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. And so I did things that looked interesting. And then I was like, no. <laughs> But I still, in the in
2: the intervening years between this class and when Anna, I started the um, podcast, every time I see a loristan bronze, I think of Anna. Oh, um, thanks, bud. Which like, sounds like it happened never, but actually there are a, few, a couple really beautiful ones at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. So I saw them all the time. It was a bad um, paper. <laughs> but before we get started, started... Um, we should say this is another edition of Oops, All Bummers, yeah. um, because I wrote it. And the story, but seriously, though, the story of what yeah. happened to Hassan Liu is a very visceral reminder of what humans can do to each other, as well as how the relationship between an archaeologist and what they consider to be their site can impact research. So um, some of today's content is really upsetting, but we'll give you a heads up.
1: Yeah, but first, and... Mm-hmm. and- Probably there will be some jokes made or, you know, comments, but that's just my effort at dealing with the, the impact of terrible trauma through nervous laughter and processing things through comedy. So I'm just leaning into it. Yeah. But first, the site. Yes. So like Amber said, Hassan Liu is in the Qatar River Valley of what is today northern Iran. The site itself consists of a 25-meter-high central mound called the Citadel by excavators. Is that the Tepe, or does Tepe refer to the whole site? Like, Tepe is a mound, right? Get to the end of the paragraph. Alrighty. (laughs) The site itself consists of a 25-meter-high central mound called the Citadel by excavators, surrounded by a lower outer town, 8 meters above the surrounding Solduz Plain. The site is about 600 meters across, and the citadel's diameter is about 200 meters. Hasanlu is what's known as a tell site, where continuous occupation of a single spot over the millennia forms a mound or hill, which is what tell means in Arabic. Since Hasanlu is in Iran, the term is Tepe in Farsi. Oh. <laughs> if you're in... <laughs> <laughs> so yes, <Yep>. okay. <laughs> yeah. If you're an old-timey archaeologist looking for treasure, a great place to start is a large mound, rising out of an otherwise low-lying plain. Yep. So it (laughs) should... I found one! So it should come as no surprise that a few different folks poked around the site before 1956, when the large-scale project led by the University of Pennsylvania, in conjunction with the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Archaeological Service of Iran, began. On three other occasions, very big deals love those people did some excavation in the
2: <laughs> well hmm? no they're just like very prominent archaeologists yeah like the like but they happened to not be Americans um, and ended yeah. up working like mostly in the Soviet Union so a lot of people haven't heard of them so I just glazed over
1: it oh, okay very big deals <laughs> very big deals it is anyway they did some excavating in the mid 1930s and late 40s which suggested that there was something very big happening in this little Tepe. This is from Dr. Michael Dante's website on the Hassan uh, publication project. Quote, These early excavations drew attention to the site as a potentially rich source of information on Iron Age Iran, a particularly important period since scholars believe the transition from the Bronze to the Iron Age marks the point when Indo-Aryan populations, ancestors of the Medes, Persians, and modern Iranians, first entered the region. It was not until 1956 that long-term scientific excavations were started at the site by Robert H. Dyson Jr., a young Near Eastern archaeologist at the University of Pennsylvania Museum. The Hasanlu project would go on to complete 14 seasons of excavation at Hasanlu Tepe and carry out work at several surrounding sites. These excavations revealed a long occupation sequence spanning the early Pottery Neolithic, the time of the first farming villages in the region, all the way to the medieval period. The most important contribution was the light shed on cultural developments during the early Iron Age, 1400 to 800 BCE, or Hassan Lu period 5 and 6. Nope, nope. 5 and 4. Yep. I can't read. Can't read Roman. At this time, a new archaeological culture appears in northwestern Iran. At Hassan Lu, entirely new types of burial customs, ceramics, and architecture were introduced. These developments set the stage for the cultures of the later Iron Age, such as the Medes and Achaemenid Persians. End yeah. quote.
2: Yeah. So um, we're going to be talking most about Hassan Lu four. Not six. Uh, not six. <laughs> Hasanlu six. Hassan Lu six is better published. Uh, huh. But just All so right. we're clear, let's have a quick refresher on the principle of superposition. Oh, I know which, this one. <laughs> this one t- didn't come up in that class we took together.
1: <laughs> no, and, you know, no actual talk of how-to archaeology, but I uh, sure did learn about some bronzes. I mean, that was not the point of that class. <laughs>
2: no. <laughs> no. So the principle
1: of superposition
2: is a concept from geology, uh, but it's one that also applies to archaeological deposits and the pile of clean laundry slowly consuming my couch behind me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I didn't say, I didn't mean that to be a judgy, mm-hmm, that was like a, yeah, preach, because I also have stratigraphy of chores happening in my house. I, ugh. Ugh. So
2: the principal superposition states that younger layers of Iraq, or in our case, occupation. Stuff. Um, let me say that again, because I said younger layers of Iraq, um, <laughs> <laughs> which in this case. We're me. in Iran, Amber. <laughs> The principle of superposition states that younger layers of rock, or in our case, occupation, are deposited upon older layers. So uh, we discussed this more extensively in our episode about taphonomy. But this seemingly simple idea is the backbone
1: of much of archaeological knowledge. I think I used the metaphor of a, a cake, a very, a very badly it, made layer cake. It, it, yeah, it got weird.
2: Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so at Lu. As at most tell sites, excavators begin at the surface. Yay. The, the first layer of archaeological material they encountered was labeled Hasenlu 1 with a Roman numeral. As they continued excavating, when a new distinct layer of occupation was found, that became Hassan 2. And down they went until eventually they concluded with Hasanlu Lu 10, because below Hassan 10, there wasn't any more evidence of human
1: occupation. Sterile deposits. Yes.
2: So one is the youngest, 10 is the oldest, and using ceramic chronologies, radiocarbon dating, and objects from other places, either things that are imported or just uh, things that have been excavated elsewhere that you can compare them to, Mm -hmm. Dyson and his team laid out roughly 5,000 years of life on this one tepe in the middle of the Soldus Ushnu Valley. But we don't have time for all of that, and I promised you the Iron Age, so let's return to today's task at hand, Hassan Lu 4, or if we're going to be very specific, Hassan Lu 4B, the destruction layer. Today, Hassan sits in northwestern Iran, east of the contemporary border with Iraq and Turkey in the geocultural region of Kurdistan. So I'm not saying that that the people at Hassan were Kurdish, I'm just saying that no, it's, it's Kurdistan sort of it today. But Kurdistan is is a meaningful it's a meaningful geographic term, just as saying near the border with Iraq and Turkey. So, yeah, um, and there in the in the early first millennium BCE, Hasanlu was along trade routes among several heavy hitters of the day. Um, Dyson, the principal excavator. um, Noted the impact of the material culture of the site saying, quote, the syncretistic and syncretistic mean hybridized from existing traditions to make something totally new. Um, the syncretistic nature of the architecture and artifact assemblages at Hassan may be understood by recognizing its location on trade routes leading from the kingdom of Urartu to the north from Assyria and Syria to the West and from mana and media to the Southeast. These trade routes also used for military campaigns facilitated the movement to soldus of materials, objects, craftsmen, teachers, and officials from neighboring centers in quote. Oh, it's a hopping place to be very hopping. So we're going to leave or for now as a bit of a checkoff's expansionist military power, expect it to go off in the third act. So literary. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and um, we're going to save what's happening in the early 1st millennium BCE, sort of empires-wise until later.
1: But for now, let's get to that excavation. All righty. In his 2006 article, The Excavation of Hasan Lu, An Archaeological Evaluation, I, I almost read that as an archaeological excavation. I was like, yeah, you said that. No, never mind. Uh, <laughs> so in this article, Hasan Liu project member Oscar White Muscarella summed up the site with his own review of the publication history of Hasan Liu in the following abstract, quote, The site of Hassan Lu in northwestern Iran was excavated in 10 campaigns between 1956 and 1974. Publications of the excavations by the director, Robert H. Dyson Jr., and by expedition staff members have appeared in many academic journals and in a number of other venues up to the present, including several monographs. They amount to more than 90 works, but only one final synthetic report has ever appeared. Much of Hassan Lu still remains underpublished and unpublished. Further, a review of the publications that have appeared across the past 50 years reveals an inadequate and inconsistent, sometimes confusing, documentation of the various cultural levels uncovered with the artifacts, architecture, burials, and chronology, end quote. He has some opinions, huh? Oh,
2: that is what he does.
1: Yeah, no, uh, that, that is I'm, exclusively I'm, what he does. I'm, uh, I'm very was, familiar with his work. He
2: was one of the team. He was there. Yeah, he was, yeah, <laughs> I You know. were there, Oscar, but go on.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that hot take was published well over a decade ago. And despite the best efforts of folks like M- Michael Dante, as quoted above, and Megan Cifarelli and others, new monographs appear to languish. You'll see in the show notes if you if you look on our website. Um, that much of what we're citing comes from Dyson himself. And many of those even were published in the University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology's own magazine, Expedition. Expedition. <laughs> yes. It's in italics, so I want to pronounce it French. <laughs> Dyson describes the archaeological record of Iron Age Hassan Liu in Encyclopedia Ironica as follows.
2: Like he wrote the encyclopedia entry for his own site.
1: Yeah. Well, Keeping you would it, want that, right? Keeping a tight grip. Yeah, but you would want an expert, I guess, to write an entry on something like that. It's even easier to be the expert if you don't let anybody else talk about it. Fair enough. Okay. (laughs) Quote, during this period, the mound's summit was surrounded by a narrow wall with small buttresses, which ran down the western slope, enclosing three parallel ramps. These sloping ramps gave access to areas and to a small chariot gate that led to the central open area. Horse trappings recovered from the excavations were for both ridden and driven horses, and the charred remains of a chariot were identified. The gear and several horse skeletons were recovered from the collapsed remains of the temple center, which had been destroyed by burning in a sudden attack at the end of the 9th or early in the 8th century BCE by an unknown foe. Due to the suddenness of the sacking, most of the buildings retained their contents, especially the materials stored on their second floors. Over 7,000 artifacts were identified, which include a wide range of utensils, weapons, jewelry, decorative wall tiles, metal and ceramic vessels, horse gears, seals and ceilings, and so on. Materials represented include iron, bronze, gold, silver, antimony, shell, ivory, bone, amber, glass, wood, and stone. No written tablets were recovered, but stone mace head, ooh, stone maceheads and vessel fragments preserve names connected to Assyria and Elam. End quote. This abrupt and cataclysmic destruction level at Hassan Lu and the incredible degree of preservation is what earned it its comparisons to Pompeii. However, unlike Pompeii, this destruction layer was not the result of a natural disaster. It was the outcome of very deliberate violence. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about what was really found in the destruction layer of Hasanlu. Lu. Not all of our listeners will be comfortable listening to this, so if you'd prefer, feel free to tap out and fast forward to the next ad break. After that, we're going to discuss theories around who was responsible for the sacking of Hasan Liu and some other ways in which this site is so important to our understanding of the archaeology of Western Asia.
0: Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR
2: University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu APN today. And we're back. It is the last day at Hassan Sen Lu. Perhaps it's a quiet, typical day, or perhaps folks are growing increasingly anxious with every rumor of violence brought by merchants traveling through. Times are changing out there, but life here is still pretty nice. Uh, down the hillside, there's a large lower town, but the bustling heart of Lu is still the Citadel, which is almost seven acres large where local governance takes place in large column buildings. People worship in temples and you can nab yourself some gorgeous home goods or jewelry expertly crafted with that certain Hassan Luyen, quoi. It's a nice place. No, um, I um, just, uh, yeah. Hassan mm. Yeah. And cause it's, it's got its own, it's got its own flavor because yeah. they, they're no, very absolutely. comfortable. Like they, we have every reason to believe that they um, live very comfortable lives Uh, Very healthy people. Uh, They have a lot of uh, sort of art and materials coming through. Maybe they travel. Maybe they stay there, and people come to them financially
1: secure. And yeah, yeah.
2: Well. Perhaps the attack came on suddenly, where people were in the middle of the day, unaware of what was happening until it was too late. Soldiers assigned to keep watch at the entrance to the Citadel, which was accessible via a road on the western side of the mound, might sound the alarm when they see the invading forces. This isn't a place that's familiar with war and violence, and they aren't exactly prepared for an attack here in the very pretty Citadel dedicated to more civilian matters. Everyone jumps into action. Tell the women to get the children inside where it's safe. Send them into the temple. It's made of brick; they'll be safer there. Um, these people are fam- These people who are coming in are famous for raiding the cities they sack. So grab the images of the gods, protect the votives, get everything inside, get everyone safe, and the the soldiers will try to keep them at bay. The attackers move quickly, and not everyone is lucky enough to make it inside, instead clinging to their panicked neighbors in alleyways and plazas. The invading force makes quick work of them, severing limbs and crushing skulls, leaving people to die in the street. They keep moving, looking for whatever motivated the attack that's lost to history. At least 89 people
1: died this way, their bodies lying in situ until excavators found them. Two such victims were discovered in 1973, and they might be familiar to you even if you thought you'd never heard of Hassan Liu before today. They are called the Lovers, for reasons we will explain momentarily, and they were found together in a mud brick bin. Let's meet these two people, and this information is from the Penn Museum's digital collection highlights. So they're the older lover and the younger lover. The older is on their left side facing the other skeleton, the right hand is touching the face of the skeleton, and it is uh, this older individual is the mostly complete skeleton of an older young adult, 30 to 35 years old. There are some signs on the skeleton of aging or physical activity, like early osteoarthritis in the spine physical characteristics for sex determination are less clear on this individual. Uh, They have some traits that are masculine in form, others that are more feminine or neutral. And if you want to know more about this, you can take a a listen to our episode on intersex. There are some features of the skull that indicate a male individual, uh, like kind of heavier ridges over the eye. The pelvis has mixed features like a moderately wide sciatic notch. So that's sort of on the area of the pelvis where you sit. It's also the area, if you have sciatica like me, it's where that acts up. Um, this individual was relatively healthy with no dental disease or uh, injuries other than the ones that caused their death. There's some evidence of injuries to the right side of this in- individual's body. Um, the body itself was facing upwards and was exposed. And so there are some injuries on the right leg, the femur and the uh, the tibia and fibula of the lower leg, and then also on the left side of the cranium, near the eye and the cheekbone. Okay, and so then we have the younger lover. This individual was on their back, facing the other. So the two skeletons were facing one another, and this one had um, their head turned. Face uh, they were on their back with their head turned, facing the other individual, and this was a mostly complete skeleton of a young adult or older sub-adult between 19 and 22 years old. And we know this because this individual had their wisdom teeth recently erupted. This one had a pelvis that was clearly male. Um, the cranium had indications that were sort of less indicative, but probably because this individual was so young. And then this individual also seemed to have been in good health before they died. So Whether they were romantic partners, relatives, neighbors or just strangers caught in an act of terror, the positioning of one person touching the face of another in a gesture of comfort is a visceral image of the end of the world for two people that up until then had enjoyed healthy lives until they ended up in a bin hiding together.
2: And during this, something even worse than the attackers was taking hold of Hassan Lu. Somewhere in the citadel, whether by a lamp knocked over in the fracas or an intentional act of arson, a fire had started. It moved fast. The dry thatch of roofs and the reed mats on the floors, perfect kindling. As the fire moved through the mud brick buildings, the ceilings and support beams of roofs and second stories collapsed, trapping people inside. Across five such buildings, approximately 157 people have been found. At the temple which is now known to excavators as burned building Two, about 50 people were found clustered at the door on the Northern side in a failed escape attempt from the murderers outside and the walls and ceiling around them. Those people included individuals with weapons and armor, possibly soldiers accompanying the, the otherwise largely women and children. Um, and so this is where there's a, a heavier concentration of, of children found. So mm-hmm. these are, Juveniles and sub-adults um, The fire moved too fast for the attackers To raid the stores of cultic objects Or luxury goods from the other monumental buildings There's, it, it appears that A lot of stuff was kept on the second floor So um, huge Containers of things like, like beads And um, s- Supplies and things Were on the second story and then when the roof Gave in, when the ceiling gave in, it all Fell down on top of everyone um, But the the fire consumed everything too quickly so the cultic objects and the luxury goods are were still there they they weren't taken from the monumental buildings all told as we said before excavators found upwards of 7000 objects in situ including weapons and armor of the people who tried to protect it horse trappings metal and ceramic vessels jewelry and cylinder seals if it's the shiny things you like, collapse Building also held silver, gold, and other precious materials, including the very famous gold bowl of mm-hmm. Hassan Lu, which was found crushed in, I think, 1956. I think it was the first year. Um, and there's no evidence of looting after the fire because no one was left.
1: So who did it? Short answer, we don't know. Long answer, we don't know. But boy, howdy, do people have some opinions about it? There are two primary suspects, Assyria and Urartu. Much ink has been spilled about the similarities between materials recovered from Hassan Lu and the art of the Assyrian Empire, referring at times to Assyrianizing art. And it has been suggested that Hassan Lu was part of the Assyrian world, albeit on the far eastern frontier. Those involved in the excavations believe that the attack was part of a military incursion by Urartian forces at the end of the 9th century BCE. And so we find ourselves back at Urartu, which is an exonym drawn from Assyrian sources describing a geographical region around Lake Van. It's off the wall. Oh, God. (laughs) A cognate for Urartu is Ararat, as in Mount Ararat from the Bible. Great cognac comes from there. Um, The people who lived in Urartu are identified as ancestors of the Armenians, but this political entity emerged after the collapse of the Hittite state when there was something of a power vacuum in Anatolia and its environs. At the turn of the first millennium BCE, there was Urartu, Lydia, Phrygia, Syro-Hittite states formed by Aramaeans moving in, the local Luwians in real life, Troy. Remember Troy? That was probably a Luwian city along with many other polities. Some were aggressive military states, while others were local groups exercising self-governance in the absence of an external empire. But among all of these, Aratu was described by Assyrian sources as their enemy to the north. At the end of the 9th century, Urartu had conquered its way into the Lake Urmia region. Was Hasanlu just another casualty of its military campaign? Were the excavated weapons, a small number of which resembled examples from elsewhere in Urartu's orbit, dropped by raiding sol- soldiers?
2: Or did the attack happen almost a century later, when Hasanlu was already within the orbit of Urartu itself? other researchers most famously Anna a medvedskaya um, who published an article in 1988 um, entitled who destroyed hassan lu for um, she believes that the evidence points more concretely towards assyria she leaves no room for ambiguity in her last line of quote hassan lu was destroyed by the assyrians in 714 bc <laughs> fight me <laughs> well which yep spoiler I alert know. they did i know um, <laughs> By looking at iconographic and stylistic similarities between horse fittings at Lu and elsewhere, as well as a critical <laughs> review of the
1: military, I, I want that to be someone getting fitted for a horse. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm late for my horse fitting. <laughs> I'm sorry. Please continue. <laughs> say say yes to the horse. Um- as well as
2: a critical review of the military history of the Iron Age in the region, Medvedskaya not only argues for a later date of occupation and thus destruction of Hassan Lut IV, but also calls into question the motivations for destroying the city in the first place and destroying it utterly in the first place. So, 714 BCE, Medvedskaya's proposed date of destruction falls within the reign of Sargon II. In Akkadian... Sargon is actually Sharu Ukan, meaning legitimate king. Uh, so our friend Paul, he would be What's up, Paul? He would be Sharu Paul rather than Lugal Paul. Uh, but he's Sumerian, not Akkadian. <laughs> when, he's American. <laughs> I just go in by what he tells us.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> he's a good Lou. Yeah. Um when Sargon II assumed the throne, he designated himself as the true successor of Sargon of Akkad, not the white nationalist whose name is actually Karl. Um, Sargon of Akkad, the first, the, the founder of the Akkadian Empire, what mm-hmm. many will argue as the first empire. Sargon II's official titles were King of Babylon, King of Assyria, King of Sumer and Akkad, King of the Four Corners of the World, and King of the Universe. So I can just his- see
1: him like dictating that. He's like, you know what? his universe
2: um later like in in the dynasty they added um i think they also added king of egypt and king of cush which ha nice Nice. (laughs) (laughs) but that was that was not sargon sargon you could say had a bit of an ego Mm. (laughs) seeing that he was king of the four corners of the world and king of the universe um So he also founded the Sargonid dynasty, the last round of Neo Assyrian kings before the Assyrian empire jumped the shark and fell in 609 BCE. So the Sargonid dynasty is something that I am, and I cannot possibly understate this, a huge nerd about. Oh, really? The way that people like get like creepily nerdy about like Stalin
1: and like... (laughs) Or, or, like, we jumped right to Stalin. Or, I was or gonna like, say just well, like, just like sc- serial of, killers or something. No,
2: no, I'm talking like specifically like military history, like people who are interested oh. in like military powers or like people who are like really into the Civil War, but you're just okay. like, why? I'm that for the Sargonid dynasty. Um, so, if listeners are, <laughs> se- but like, but unsettling. <laughs> Uh, Um, so if listeners have seen the Assyrian reliefs at the British museum, um, many of the ones on display, or if you've seen like books of the Assyrian reliefs at the British museum, um, many of the ones (laughs) on display are from the Sargonid dynasty and, Mm -hmm. um, they depict, well, a whole lot of things that we would probably consider today to be war crimes, something. And that's part of the reason why they are on the walls at the British museum. They are visually compelling something that is readily apparent in the historical records reliefs and in some cases the archaeology of this period is that assyria under the sargonids was a machine of total war anything they could conquer and extract and exact wealth and labor and access from they did and anything they couldn't control and thus siphon off resources humans and access to other resources and humans um, Anything they couldn't get that out of, they destroyed, dehumanized, and eliminated as a threat,
1: however necessary. Mm,
2: a powerful
1: lesson. Yes. Was mm. the
2: attack on Hassan Lu some kind of revenge on urartu which was eluding the yoke of Ashur still? Um, or was it some other act of violence for violence's sake? Um, so in 712 BCE, Sargon... Is, has had enough of these Urartians. So um, by seven twelve, Sargon the is just like in the in the in the annals. He's just like I've had it up to here with the Urartians because um, I think it's the Urartians <laughs> and the Sumerians like keep doing raids. This period, so the Sargonid period is a period of really rapid expansion of Assyrian military control, and so Assyria has been kind of. Um, pretty focused on, um, the Eastern Mediterranean because getting to the Eastern Mediterranean and, um, controlling access to the Mediterranean ocean means controlling access to everything coming from the other shores of the Mediterranean ocean. And, and that's, that makes it e- It's easier and cheaper to get stuff through there than it is to keep getting stuff the way you used to get stuff down through the Gulf and into the Indian Ocean. So they've been focusing on that. They're trying to move north um, into what is, at this point, Urartu. Um, but also they're having a lot of trouble in the heartland because um, they're controlling Babylon and down in like southern Mesopotamia. And there is a lot of... Um, insurrection, there are a lot of people who are trying to throw off the Assyrian control, mm-hmm. which has a lot to do with how the Assyrian Empire ended up falling apart altogether. Uh, so they ha- they have problems close at home, problems far at home, and they're just wilding out. <laughs> so, could it be that? So the excavators behind the Hasanlu project thought absolutely not. It definitely was an Assyrian place. They felt Assyrian, they were Assyrian, even though Assyria was really far away and it just sort of shown up. Um, and it was absolutely Erartians that did it. And Medvedskaya's article was possibly the first, and certainly not the last, of attempts by researchers not affiliated immediately affiliated with the excavation to consider other options, only to met with as yet secret data Um <laughs> Which, like, they like hoarded hoarded data, no, like, like, they didn't publish. You, yeah, you, you could present something at a conference or publish something, and then somebody would show up and be like,
1: Well, well this, no, the one guy this. would show up and be
2: like, Well, um, interesting, but here's an evidence of this. And you're just like, Cool, thanks. Um, I had well, no I, access to that before this. Yeah, as was too often the case, abject ridicule. Her cool. Medvedskaya's career was sort of tanked. Yeah. Um, so, to the Hassan Lu project, the <laughs> city was definitely Assyrian and definitely conquered by
1: Urartu. Which is so cranky.
2: Is something that I still don't fully understand. Like how you can be so wedded to this idea. Uh, to the it like almost to me feels like you've got some kind of bias, and I don't know if it is like. Do you bi- think you're Assyrian? Like what? Yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah, I think it's that. Um, I want it to be that, not, and not, not you. Not, I'm, I'm no, saying that no, to. I, I I want it to be that, and not like an. I don't know, anti-Armenian sentiment or something. Ooh, like like not. like something. Yeah, cuz it's like there's something deep-seated there. Yeah. Um, but never mind. So if if Varachi was conquering this place, um it's pretty dumb if you if you <laughs> <laughs> if you are going if I were going out you know conquering you're Military something. strategy, dumb. So like a wealthy productive community that sits along several trade routes doesn't do anybody any good if you burn everything down, kill everyone, and you don't take anything back as booty. Like, what What good does it do you? You didn't conquer it. You just eliminated no, it. No, but you sure did send the message. Right. So if you're trying to make a, say, a statement, yeah. if what you're trying to do is incite terror and weaken a rival state, even if it's not... So if you're trying to weaken them by killing everyone in this community that produces gorgeous stuff and is sort of a, a nice waypoint along and seems to be has been doing okay for a long time um, that that is like a little sure. a little jab but it's also terrifying
1: yeah like it, it was it's a terrorist act I mean, really yeah,
2: yeah. which so, is you know
1: not that, a fun thing to bandy around
2: yeah so um it could be it could have been the Urartians. Or the Assyrians. And or, you know,
1: maybe it started off as a legitimate attempt to attack and conquer, but then the fire
2: the way the, but made things way change. It, the way it, um, like what we described ahead above, yeah. um, the, the way things were found in Situ is that it wasn't a, um, it didn't look like warfare. Like it didn't look like a battle at all. Oh, and, okay. I'm much seeing, less familiar with that. Yeah. The, the and, and so in and some of the stuff that's been published in Expedition and elsewhere, they refer to a <laughs> battle. But it's not it's not
1: that it doesn't look like that. If the options are the end of the ninth century by Urartu or the End of the Eighth Century by Assyria and everything burned down, can't we just use radiocarbon dating to sort out once and for all? Well, if it were that easy, we wouldn't have a podcast subject. I probably still would. (laughs) Yeah, well. Uh, But we do have a couple challenges on our hands. First, not all carbonized materials are created equal. Material like that taken from roof beams is less helpful, since it could be a beam made from a tree cut down centuries before the the conflagration. (laughs) What a good word. Before the fire. Uh, And then the second problem is that calibrated dates aren't always particularly helpful. Um, because there is not a consistent amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Thank
2: you. I was really hoping you would be able to effectively riff on this, because I'm just like, No,
1: no, (laughs) the issue is is that that different human activities and different climatic conditions have resulted in a different proportion of, of carbon in the atmosphere over time. Um, so the most famous example of this is the Hallstatt plateau, which is just like a period of time where you just can't get dates. You just can't. Oh, I yep yep. I'll uh, see our episode on on whatever that was. Was that in our dating episode?
2: That was our dating. It was for Valentine's Day last year.
1: Oh, happy anniversary of that. <laughs> um, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. This is a bummer. Uh, so the the most so the most famous example of of this idea of calibrated carbon dating not being super helpful all the time is the Hallstatt plateau. But there is another briefer plateau along the calibration curve, and hey, it's right on top of the beginning of the first millennium BCE. Right in the sweet spot where it would be super cool if we had information about. Erratum slash well, Assyria slash
2: it, yeah. So it's not just Urartu slash Assyria. It's, I mean, it's like a, it's Assyria versus anyone. Well, yeah, but it's like but specifically like, for this this yeah, oh, question yeah. though. But yeah. it but it's not so just like how the Hallstatt plateau applies to. Um, so in Europe, in like continental Europe, um, hmm. my understanding is that things were really popping off between like 800 and 400 BCE. Um Seems and right? it'd be really cool to know like exactly when and when compared to what and like to get a sense of that. But that is the Hallstatt wah, plateau. Wah. Yep. So you take the dates and they're like, Yeah, around then. And like it's like and you, you can't get
1: really specific with it, basically. Yeah,
2: you, you run, like, you, you get the radiocarbon dates. And so it's in like, the case of the stuff with, um, like, here at Hassan Liu and then, like, comparable sites, like, where you could find materials that, um, where you could do, like, stylistic analysis yeah. and things. Like, you run the dates, you fit them against the calibration
1: curve, and what comes up is just, like, a shruggy. Well, yeah, and also it's... um It's the sort of plus or minus X number of years. So usually you get a calibrated date and it's like within a range of plus or minus 25 years, which is, that's reasonable for a date that you're trying to, you know, dig up from the the distant past. But if you have plus or minus, you know, 250 years and you're trying to narrow down the scope of an event, that's not helpful. An event within a hundred years. Yes. it Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's those problems uh, which have confounded the issue further. And more recent work notes that the Assyrianness probably wasn't uh, nearly as apparent to hassan as the excavators found it to be. And there's still optimism that one day all 7,000 of those objects found in situ might be published and made available for study by more people with more and different ideas. Despite the experience of Medvedskaya and other dissenting voices in the conversation around the perpetrators of Lu's destruction, and despite the fact that the excavated materials are closely guarded by the principal excavator, and despite the fact that there is still no comprehensive publication of Lu IV, some things have progressed in better understanding what happened that day in the Iron Age.
0: Hey fans of archaeology, head over to artpodnetcom slash shop and click the link to our tea Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean seriously. Again, that's www.archpodnet.com forward slash shop for some Archaeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash timular. That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping.
2: So at the end of it, and this is also the end of my script. This is just the last line that I wrote. Um, and then I stared into the void. Does it even matter if Hasanlu was destroyed by Assyria or it was destroyed by Urartu or by someone else entirely?
1: I think it matters to some people. And I think learning who who did it will give us a richer historical picture, but really the evidence from the archaeology itself paints enough of a compelling picture that I don't know. I uh, I don't necessarily feel driven to know who did it. I just, I, I sort of want to know why, but the why yeah. connects back to the who. And so you kind of get this feedback loop of like, I want to know why this happened. Well, then I would have to know about the, the political climate and I would have to know who the big players were and why Hassan Lu mattered to those particular people and, you know, why such wholesale destruction would have taken place. So, I mean in terms of knowing the story, it does matter, but, but also let's not lose sight of the fact that this was a day, a single day where a lot of people lost their lives. So, yeah.
2: Well, yeah. And so, um, this is, so it's something where if it was a Ratu that did it as part of a, in my view, very poorly thought out, like conquest, um, if it were Arartu, that would tell us something about Erartian military tactics. Yeah, and, and that and they that they too participated in what amounts to war crimes, uh, which is very much a modern is a modern look at. Yeah, we're saying that
1: like retroactively, at, sort of.
2: Yeah, but if it were Assyria, it is it matches pretty perfectly with what Assyria said they did. <laughs> and and so I and I'll include um I'll yeah I'll include in the show notes some um references or like translations of um the these like the annals, the royal annals of these um Sargonid kings where mm-hmm. what they would do so when you have the um, the the reliefs like you might see at the British museum or in any of Julian Reed's books about the reliefs from the British museum. Mm-hmm. That might be a really great place for people to, to see Book them club um, Book club. <laughs> um, so you'll have these images. And so the images would have been um, carved in relief and put up on the walls of, in like the hallways of palaces and so this, so a lot of them are from the palace at Nineveh. That's, that's what ended yeah. up there at the British museum. So you can walk down um, the halls and the, the ruler is like, look at these things I did. Well, and so you can, you can see these like very visceral images of what happens if you dare step out of line. Yeah. And so like Assyria, because Assyria, propaganda. The, the, it's propaganda. Yeah. The king of Assyria is the king of the universe. And here's what happens if you, if you, if you forget that and so the annals would be written over top of the so some of them and are captions on, like, really well right? they're, they're not, no not really because it's no? much uh. captions aren't that long um so because the way <laughs> paragraph that, so the way that like you have to also think about literacy you wouldn't necessarily be there would be a a level of interpretation if you were just a person walking, if for whatever reason you found yourself just like walking down the hallway, you see this and being like, "Eh." but if you actually could read it, you would know so much more. And so, um, some of, some of the annals are included on like prisms and so they're like on separate things, but others are written over reliefs that show that will say, um, in the third year of my, of my campaign, I went here. I did this. I got, you know, 3,000 camels and 400 like buckets of incense and and like all of these slaves. And then that's so they talk about what they did and they talk about what they do to captives and they talk about what they do to the the non-combatants. So the the collateral in these things, they are very explicit and they are very proud, and um, some might say, um, and I don't know that they still say, but but some say that this is this is a rhetorical device that this is literary. So it's the sort of realm of hyperbole um, because or you can, or you are <laughs> being very proud and transparent of the fact that you perform total war it is interesting to me um, as somebody that thinks a lot about why like white people go out and dig holes in places mentioned in the Bible or like related to places mentioned in the Bible um, that you could go and be in an environment where it is arguable that like your boys, the Assyrians could have done this. And you're like, Oh no, not, of course not because you're seeing actual evidence of, what that propaganda is describing yep and so is it that the Assyrians were actually did the thing they said they did or is it that the Arartians or someone else also did the things that Assyria said they did but they didn't talk about it either because we haven't found Um, either because we haven't found any sort of relief sculpture depicting anything or we haven't read anything eventually urartians like took up cuneiform and um, i don't know if it was written in urartian but there are things that that we find later that are like this king ruled in this place and so that sort of stuff Um, i don't think they're writing like hundreds and hundreds of lines about how like they left this place like so messed up that people had to like drink their urine, which is something that happened. Oh, Yeah. Things like that, where they're like, they were like, I, we dev, this is what they did with the Arabs um, because they couldn't. So the, the like Ashurbanipal and co couldn't like conquest the Arabs. So what they did was in the propaganda, they started describing them as not human because like, if you were the kid, and this is sort of, this was a, like my theory from some research that I did was that if you are the king of the universe and you're the king over all of humanity, if there's something that you can't conquer, it must not be a human. Like, because this, it just, it, because it just doesn't fit. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So like that, that sort of stuff, this is the sort of stuff that they say, if anybody wants to sit down and talk about, (laughs) like, I think, I think violence people, like, and the is, body in
1: Assyria. <laughs> it's really, I, it's really interesting stuff. It's just, you know, talking about it is tough because if you have any degree of empathy, you know, even, these people lived a long time ago, but it's, Hassan Liu had a very bad day.
2: Yeah. And so like when you talk about, so if you are an Assyriologist and you are talking about things that are written and things that are drawn and you can just like, Sp- think about things very rhetorically and historically, and you can have them completely divorced from actual lived experiences. Yeah, but we're archaeologists. I know, but well, yeah, but like, and so when you when you bring when you confront the Assyriologist with what Assyria could and did do,
1: it makes it harder to like it makes get it harder so for them to be your jam. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well. It's all really interesting because it's all part of understanding humans and their relationship to one another. So that's what we do. And that's what we do. Even though it's a bummer. Sometimes. But thank you, listeners, for for joining us on on that journey. Our Valentine's gift to you. We'll be back in your ears soon with new episodes. And hey, just a quick note. If you have sponsored an episode recently, first of all, thank you so much. And secondly, if you haven't heard it yet, never fear. It is coming soon. Sometimes when we get episode requests, we try to line up a guest expert. And so uh, we've got a couple that we're working on and scheduling has proved tricky. So if you've sponsored an episode, thank you so much. And it's coming soon. We promise. Um, You can find us on social media. We post news stories, very goofy jokes, and the occasional pithy comment. You can find us on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod.
2: Yeah. And you can also go to our website, thedirtpod.com, to see all of that. And you can buy yourself some merch or you can sponsor an episode all your very own that may or may not have a guest expert lined
1: up to be a part of (laughs) this. We're trying so hard. If you want to support us on a recurring basis, you can do so at a number of tiers at patreon.com slash Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. We love you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Goodbye.
0: This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.